One of the first of, God, a million lessons that I have learned from Mitra Manesh is that not all connections are created equal. In life, there are residents and there are visitors. All those that come into your world serve a purpose. And learning to cherish them for who they are, the gifts that they bring, and the lessons that they leave you with is not only an art form, but truly something that can give you peace. Through working with Mitra, I've learned not only to say goodbye, but that how I say goodbye to my team, to relationships, and to experiences is in my power. Learning to be thankful for those who are simply passing through is an unbelievable muscle that I have learned and worked through my time with Mitra. I've also learned about the power of a resident, and there are very few residents in my life that have left a greater, deeper, or more meaningful imprint than Mitra. I met Mitra at a pretty remarkable time of my life, actually a time where I was really struggling. I was seeking answers and I was suffering in many different ways. I was overworked, I was exhausted, I was emotionally depleted, and I had really lost sight of not only what I wanted to accomplish, but who I wanted to be out in the world. I was really lacking in clarity. And not only was I lacking in clarity, but I was lacking in the tools to create clarity, right? I was lacking in the ability not only to know what to do, but the clarity within myself that I wanted to do it. I was lucky enough to be introduced to Mitra as she was teaching a course at UCLA, and she has become my greatest teacher, mentor, and dare I say friend. Mitra is the founder of InnerMap, an innovative mindfulness app and the host of the Lights On podcast, offering support for a more mindful life. She is a mindfulness thought leader, storyteller, and educator with over three decades of experience helping people of all ages and many different cultures live, love, lead more conscious lives at work and at home. Her work is unique. It's a blend of Western corporate training and Eastern inner-based practices, the result of which is a unique approach offering knowledge and wisdom in practical and empowering ways. The first time that I ever went to Mitra's office, I walked out crying. I was blown away, not by the breakthrough that I felt that I had had that day, but by her and her presence and her authority, her intelligence, and of course, her mindfulness. Mitra creates a tangible approach to how to be and live more consciously, and not just in a personal way, but in an actual technical way that you can apply to your work and to your life. Her clients range from everyday lucky people like me to celebrities and CEOs, institutions like UCLA Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, the Senate of Canada, Christian Dior, United Health Group, Amazon, Merrill Lynch, and more. And beyond that, Mitra has been a human rights commissioner in Canada and an unbelievable support system for nonprofits throughout the country. Honestly, it is with so much honor and gratitude that I bring Mitra on this podcast today and hope that she leaves an imprint on you like she does on me. I want to jump right in, Mitra, on something that you just talked about, which was not just what direction are we going in, but knowing if we're going in the right direction, right? So can you expand on that a bit? <laughs> Hi. Hi. <Sure. laughs> I didn't want to lose my train of thought. Sure. No, that's fantastic, actually. Well, you asked me how I was doing. I told you I'm doing excellent and really well. Then you asked, why do I think that is? And why do I not feel that comfortable sharing it with people? I said, everything has expedited. If you look at it, everything is on steroids. 
Now the question is, if I'm going on a direction that is not helpful, then that speed will hurt me. But if I'm going on the right direction, that speed actually helps me and expedites my journey. I feel like this speed is really helping me and my journey. Having said that, I'm quite cognizant and aware of the hurt that these circumstances are causing people because I'm quite exposed to it on a daily basis. I go to people's home internationally. Now I have classes online, so I've got people from all over the world. But really the question is, which direction we're going? That's the really only question we have. In very fair and in mutual form, the first thing I would ask you as a follow-up to this is, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know if you're going in the right direction? Perfect question. You always have good questions. <laughs> I'm really happy you're doing podcasts because podcast is about all good questions and you've got plenty of them, Farron. How do you know? Pleasure. I'm only stating the truth. How do I know? How do we know anything? The only gauge that is available at to us, at least at this level of existence, is our emotions. When it really, in a sustainable way, feels right. I'm putting a condition on it because I could feel high for something like fantastic for a minute, but then regret it and then I have to pay for it. Blah, 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 blah. So you know that wasn't a sustainable way of doing something. People, when they take revenge, they feel really happy for a minute. And then they say, I don't know why I don't feel right, because probably that wasn't what their deeper self was seeking. So when it feels right in a sustainable way, you are on the right path. That's how you know. So much of that is not only being able to understand your own emotions and feelings, but I think also knowing or maybe having a conscious choice of like wanting to be your authentic self. So how would someone be able to navigate what is authentically true to them? Because to your point, revenge might feel good to certain people and it might not feel good to others. That's true. Well, it depends on where you are at the level of consciousness when you are doing and deciding what to do at any given time. But you said something about emotions that was a very important point. When we allow the emotions to be there, because what happens is when we get uncomfortable with certain emotions and we call them negative emotions. I'm always hesitant to use that word because I don't think there is anything called negative emotions. There is comfortable emotions. There are welcomed emotions, but there are also unwelcomed emotions and challenging emotions. So I always say it, it's like, you know, I don't know if you ever played uh, hot and cold as a child. Mm -hmm, of course. So that's exactly what emotions are for. When we get too far away, going back to your point, from your authentic self, you realize that things are feeling difficult and, and uncomfortable and challenging. And our emotions are just that noise that's saying, bang, 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 you're going too far. And then what we do is we want to get rid of that. Hey, that has a lot of information. You don't want to get rid of that. You want to bring that in and see what you want to do with that. Oh, I wonder, wonder, you know, you need to be full of wonder. That's what wonderful is. And then see what that emotion is telling me. What, what is it for? What is it telling me? So authenticity allows the emotions, especially uncomfortable ones, to come in. And then, then you go to a question of, I wonder what this tells me. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm going through a lot of challenging emotions, a lot. The more it comes, the, the more I realize that I'm, I'm, really, I'm really doing well because now I don't get rid of them, sort of speak. I say, well, come on in. You are another challenging guest. As Rumi says, let them all in. Guests come in all shapes and forms. Some invited, some uninvited, some welcomed, some unwelcomed. But please let them all in as they all bear gifts for you. The comfortable ones tell you you are on the right path. The uncomfortable ones saying, you turn, please, Mitra, you turn, you turn. A fast U-turn, like right now. One of the first lessons that you ever taught me in our time together, and like in full Mitra Farron fashion, we're just jumping right in because I truly cherish every minute that I get to be with you and in your presence. But one of the first lessons you ever taught me was the distinction between a visitor and a resident. And this idea that not everyone is meant to live permanently in our lives. And it's not just being able to accept that, but also having gratitude for the gifts that visitors bring. And it feels like emotions are quite similar, like learning how to not look at them in a negative way, but really say, okay, what can I gather from this? What can I learn from this? And how can it leave a positive impact on me? Whether it's a fun or not fun emotion is sort of really what we're talking about. Perfect, perfect link you made. Exactly. Just like people, emotions are not supposed to be. And that's actually, that's where the fear comes from because we like permanentizing. I don't know if such a word exists. Uh -huh. We like everything permanent. Oh we yeah. We think everything needs to be permanent. And then we frighten the hell out of ourselves because we think, oh my God, what if this emotion stays with me forever? And then I freak out. If but I understand the impermanence nature of everything, everything, then I'm in good shape. One of the most challenging things for me as a leader is recognizing that clarity is impermanent. And right now in full transparency, I'm a combination of many things. There are certain aspects of my life and my business that I think have come to an incredible place during this time. A lot of clarity, a lot of focus, a lot of positivity. And there are certain areas of my life where I'm lacking in all of those, you know, all at the same time. I tend to get really hard on myself when I'm lacking clarity. Like that is, a, that is something that I wish was permanent. That's a great example of a feeling that, you know, when you're really clear on who you are and you're showing up super authentically, it's a very good feeling. And recognizing it's okay when it sort of waxes and wanes. It's okay if it's not going to be there because it's, it too is fleeting. I mean, your points are so great I mean, and we know that because we have this like yeah. We'll go backwards and explain to everyone why we're here <laughs> in a minute, yeah. Eventually. Yeah. But here's why clarity is not permanent. Because when you live in the world of awareness and choice, you see, in survival mode, which is the autopilot mode, which is a reactive mode. I do not have a choice. My choice is only born when I move and shift to a higher consciousness. So, okay, great. I've done well. I've come from survival to a conscious level that I realize I have a choice. Here's the problem with that. I mean, problem. Here's the characteristic of that state of being. There are paradoxes. What was true now may not be true and that's why clarity that was fantastic and serving you a minute ago may not serve you. So clarity, uh, when? 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 Whenever people say I have clarity, I said, when? 
like a minute ago, that's great. Yeah. And then somebody <laughs> comes up with a new idea. I mean, that's what people call it brainstorming. I call it heartstorming. When we are in heartstorming sessions, we're great. We're going and everything is good. And we think, oh, we've got, we've got something permanent. And then somebody comes up with a fantastic new idea. And it's almost everybody celebrates and then everybody drops. Have you ever seen it? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're going to do this all over again. We just <laughs> formulated everything, solidified everything, which those things doesn't exist. And that's the beauty of consciousness at a higher level. Paradox exists in that level. So I think this is a good moment to take a bit of a step back and sort of start from more of the beginning. When I think about my work with you and the unbelievable experience that I've had learning from you and being mentored by you, the first thing I think of is a choice to be conscious. So really, can you maybe talk a bit about what does that mean? To me, the starting point of the work that you do is making a decision that you want to be conscious and mindful in both your life and in your work. So when we live a life that we feel we're not in charge, then we will wait for the outside world to behave certain way. And that determines how we are. So I'm, I probably would have been praying, hoping that Farron is in a good mood. <laughs> I hope she has good questions. I hope Jeannie is on top of production so that I can have a good podcast. So you see, I did not even go to myself. I went all on you. Okay, maybe I, I went and, you know, did my hair, but... Everything else was like hoping that you guys are okay and you like me and you ask good questions. But this is so because we know each other and we have a lot of great energy between all three of us. But what if that wasn't the case? Because life can't be always determined like that. I may have to speak to people and be in front of people that they do not have those connection with me. So where, where do I stop counting on the outer world and start counting on the inner world? And that's when the choice is born. It's actually, it's not the fact that we don't know. It's just, we know we have so much power, but it's frightening because when I have the power, when I have a choice, then everything falls on me. And I'm not sure if I can handle all that responsibilities. I'm better off to you know, put it all on your shoulders and then go and complain if it didn't go well. It's just like Farron wasn't in a good mood and Jeannie didn't know how to do it. So it's much easier because I don't have to take responsibilities and I can just go and blame and claim and do all those things that we do. It's a lot of responsibility recognizing that it is all in your, not only control, and what I mean by all is your actions are in your control and how you react to things, your command. So, I mean, a really good example of this is, and I'll be very, give a really personal anecdote here, but I went through a breakup many years ago and like most, I was frustrated, I was sad and I was scared and I was moving out of the apartment that we shared. You know, like most, I wanted to wreck it. <laughs> like, I just wanted to like leave it a mess, smash things, throw things out the window. And Mitra challenged me instead and said, actually leave it with love. Make the choice to leave it with love because that is an, a conscious choice and an action of one, the energy that you're going to put into that place, that time, that experience, but also more aligned with who I authentically am. That would have been to the point of the discussion in the beginning, a moment of revenge. It would have just been a moment of like rash decision-making. And really what you were challenging me to do was to be responsible for my choices and that I can't control what at that time he or others around me were thinking, were feeling, were doing, but I could control myself and how I showed up in the world. And I remember 
sitting there at that moment right before I was leaving, deciding what I was going to do. And I left it with love. I left it impeccably clean, perfectly organized with a lovely goodbye note. And it forever changed me because it was the moment for me where I recognized to what you just talked about, that our choices are in our control, but it is a tall order. It is a tall order to want to live a life of responsibility. It is a lot easier to constantly place blame or be the victim or not take that accountability. And I think that that is one of the greatest things that actually more than even in my personal life has impacted my leadership. You do a lot of work on leadership. Can you talk a little bit about how this sort of conscious choice that we're talking about impacts how you show up as a leader? Well, I started actually finished teaching a course at UCLA on mindful leadership. My first point was, if I cannot lead me, I cannot lead anyone else. It's a very simple, simple statement and simple conclusion. If I cannot really lead my emotions, and I love the world command, in command of, of it, uh, and you use the beautiful world, you said responsibility, responsibility, ability to respond instead of ability to react. So react, everybody has that ability. Anybody go and you know, push somebody on the street just, just randomly and say a, an unkind word. You probably, there's a good chance you're going to get a you know, reaction. But the question is, are you able to respond instead of react? And that's the commandment that I'm talking about. But you're bringing also a great point because you're very practical in that world. It's a tall order. It's a tall order. We're not talking about perfectionism. And you know, I am, my, most of my work is like anti-perfectionism because mm-hmm. that's actually the enemy of responsibility because that's such a tall order that I won't even start the just fear of you know, failing and not being able to do it. But it's a practice. I mean, I I always tell uh, my children, I fall every day, but I always get up immediately. I fall on every breath, on every thought, I fall. But the question is not about falling. I suppose that's what resiliency is all about. The question is, how fast can I get up? But more importantly, it's not just action. How much larger greater can I get up, which is exactly what you were talking about. You got up from that experience. You left that experience with greatness. Does it mean you never regret it? You never remember it? There's never pain? Of course not. You weren't a computer leaving your home. You were a human being with a lot of emotions and memories. However, you left it with greatness. And that was an amazing conscious choice. It was really the beginning of, I think, a journey of attempting to show up with greatness, right? And recognizing that if you are in a leadership position and you have a level of responsibility, it doesn't change the reality that you are human, that you are still feeling the same feelings of not being good enough, of failure, of ego, of fraud, you know, fraud syndrome. Like you're still feeling all the things, quite frankly, most of the time that your team may be feeling, but that if you want to show up for others, you have to first show up for yourself. And I think- being conscious of who I wanted to be. And this is reminding me of something we'll talk about next, but really becoming conscious of who I wanted to be and the recognition that I had in that moment that I was in control of that, I think was the unlock. And there are many moments throughout my career that you and I have been working together where I don't want to say an old me, but a a less conscious me 
would have shown up more with my ego, more in that rash moment, more from the reaction than the command. And coming from a place of commanding is where I think leadership actually really begins. One of the things that has been an incredible tool that maybe this just came to me is sort of the naming of energies. When we talk about being conscious, right, you are conscious of the choice that you are making in any given moment. And for me, like, again, in these sort of challenging moments, I realize that who I am and my values, I want to show up with respect, with grace, with authority, right? Which is why something like leaving that apartment with love was right for me as a person. And that has carried in the most challenging of moments that I've had in work or in relationships, I have tried to raise the bar for myself and apply that level of grace and authority. And we have named that energy. So talk Mm -hmm. to me about the power of naming energies and why you work on helping people define those sort of personas that they have. So when I say I or me, I always say which, which one? Because there are so many different aspects of me. We assume there's just one sleeping mitra or awakened mitra. There are many, many shades in there. And the reason I want to know them and I actually name them and have fun with them is because then I want to become aware of which one is suggesting making decisions, taking actions, because that says a lot about my level of consciousness. So the best visual, and you know, because of my dyslexia, I'm all about visuals, is like, imagine that you're sitting at the table, one of these like Louis XVI kind of tables, really long, and there are a lot of people on each side of the table. The question is, who's at the head of the table? Who is the queen? Who is the king? Who is that person who's at the top and is making decisions? So the usually common question when I say that in the class is, so who should be making decisions? And I said only one person, the aware me. And by the way, that doesn't even mean that you always go for greatness. As long as I'm aware, it's okay. I have broken things very consciously, very consciously. I have screamed and made scenes very consciously. But it's not about that, whether or not I'm I'm always so-called behaving. You can misbehave, but misbehave knowingly. That's all I'm saying. The only question is, am I doing it consciously, knowingly? Is the aware mitra, is the aware farad making those decisions? Or did I not know what happened? And when I was done, I thought, oh my God, didn't want to say that, didn't want to do that. That's the real question. I'm not popularizing you know good behavior i'm not doing that i'm saying just be conscious about what you're doing i have screamed i have made scenes very consciously and i've got results that i wanted because i knew what i was doing but the question is can i do it all the time well i think that it's sort of like okay so what we were first talking about right was understanding your own values and being conscious really leadership sort of beginning if you will or be a facet of leadership, being understanding your values and being conscious of how you are living them. I think this, what we're talking about is a little bit like your behaviors and understanding that the farin that may show up in those challenging moments with my clients is different than maybe the one coaching my team, is different maybe the one on my call with Mitra or showing up at dinner with my parents, and that we can be multifaceted and we can be diverse and dynamic And I can be very well-behaved in certain scenarios and not so well-behaved in others. But it is the consciousness and being aware of it that creates actually that level of power. 
And I think a lot of us show up the same. Like I remember being in the earlier days of my career at Michael Kors and I was as passionate, loud, like aggressive in the office as I was out of it. And I used to bring a ton of emotion into the workplace and it served me well in certain ways. But looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? It wasn't that I had to change who I was. It was that those behaviors, if I was more aware now, I would recognize those behaviors actually weren't serving me as much as I thought they were in that environment. So maybe save those for somewhere else and bring a different, more commanding energy to my leadership which I think is part of what has helped me to develop my leadership is being very conscious of, you know, in a very simple tactical way, like what impact do I want to make on my team and those around me? And then how do my behaviors actually match that and ladder up to that? Which goes exactly back to clarity, the clarity of why I'm here and what am I doing? And, and then consciousness, we, we seem to be all in seas, consciousness and clarity, and then being in command of your action so that the three C's are born here. So that clarity, that consciousness and, and being in charge, meaning being response able. And then I, I choose just, just to give you a very short example. So I advise people, you know that I do a lot of counseling for workplaces, executive coaching, teaching. Okay. That's great. I remember we were at a party and somebody was making a very inappropriate point about something that had to do with the area of my work. And I remember my daughter coming, looking at me and saying, mom. And I said, what? She said, you're not going to answer him. I said, no. Why? She said, oh, did you hear what you said? Yeah. She said, you're not going to answer. I said, no, Friday night. I'm having fun. Why would I want to take him on? First of all, anybody with that level of consciousness will not change publicly. I'm going to ruin the gathering. I'm going to ruin my evening. He's not going to learn. I'm going to make an enemy. Why would I do it? So am I not, you know, doing that for a living? Yes, I am. But part of my leadership, self-leadership, is to understand and really appropriateness, which one, which mitra is showing up. The very relaxed sort of social mitra was there, and she enjoyed herself and the company of other people. And there was some noise in the background, and that was fine. But whereas if that person said it in a session, I wouldn't let him go mm-hmm. because he has come to me for a reason. And I always say I'm a truth teller. As uncomfortable as sometimes our sessions get, I'm not going to let him go. I'm going to tell him, you know, what I tell him, but not in a party, not in that setting. So the commandment part of our being in charge and leadership is to know the appropriateness of, of the place which one of Mitra's and that table needs to show up. To that point, you mentioned self-leadership, which is sort of the managing of ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? So uh, we walk the streets of life, again, the, the same thing as I said, hoping, wishing, and then demanding and getting disappointment, uh, disappointed and angry because the conditions were not such that really brought about certain behavior from us. Really what we're doing is we're letting go of self-leadership or the agency, if you like, it's a more psychological, Mm -hmm. but uh, the the leadership is more, to me, more practical aspect of what we're talking about. But when I am in charge, I, again, walk the streets of life, work-wise, personally, socially, and financially, so many other ways, emotionally, knowing that I have a choice. So I am the constant 
of all these changes around me. I am that, if you like, if, if you're a meditator, you know this, I am the anchor. I am the anchor for, for my life. What is I? The aware me, the leader me, the, the one in command me. So I become, it's like a tower of observation like we have at the airports. That's who I am. I am sitting on the top floor observing the events, the people, and my emotions, my reactions. Oh my God, that's interesting. I feel completely jealous right now. That's one of the most common, most common and most denied emotions. If I hear one more person, if I could just charge them one cent for every time for past 35 years that I heard, you know, I'm not jealous. I'm saying, really? Let's talk about it. No, no, no. Let me tell you what. No, 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 no. Let's stay with that. You're not jealous? Really? Jealousy has a lot of information. Welcome your jealousy. So the aware me is really doing and observing and witnessing those emotions. That's the first principle in leadership. When I can do that without getting too involved, just think about what is a good leader? A good leader is a person who can watch her team and give them what they need, but never get too involved. Micromanagement, right? Remember, the most common thing that people do or lack of management. Micromanagement, no management. So it's exactly what you want to do with yourself. And if I can't practice that, if I haven't practiced that in myself, how can I lead you? How can I lead my team? It's interesting because the first place my mind went to was managing time. However many years ago, I made this conscious choice that I wanted to be a better leader, that I wanted to show up and that actually not only did I want to, but that it actually fueled me, right? Like one of the things that I learned through a lot of the work that I've done with you is I actually find a lot of joy teaching and coaching and working with young marketers and developing brands. And that's a part of what brings me fulfillment. And so in that understanding created this sort of responsibility. If I'm going to do this, I got to show up. So the how I show up became part of my journey. And I think for me, one of the things that's really challenging is managing the time between managing myself and managing my team. Why is managing yourself so important? And how do you draw the line between creating that space and time for managing yourself and then also managing as a leader, those around you? And this is a really tactical question that I'm really more just asking advice for, <laughs> you know, but I'm sure many people are listening are challenged, especially during this time, this time where boundaries are broken and it's become really increasingly difficult to create that line. What advice would you give? How, how do people manage that? So first of all, I have a feeling, but you haven't. I know you haven't because you know me enough. You didn't need to research anything, but you're almost saying all the keywords for all the courses that I'm <laughs> teaching or have taught in the past few months since the pandemic. So one of the courses I taught was called uh, Befriending Time. Mm. And this is so important because talking about irresponsible behavior, we are completely victimized ourselves in relationship to time. And now what we want to do is we want to look at the vocabulary. We want to kill time. We want to meet deadlines. Do you hear how violent the, the whole language is? And at best, we want to manage the time. So our language is very much indicative of the nature of relationship with time that we have. Time is completely human-made. The concept of time, but true, sun rises. So we took the, uh, the rising of the sun, we made something, structured it, 
all good, no problem, nothing wrong. But now that that structure that we have made is our enemy because we feel victimized in relationship to time that we want to manage it and kill it and, and dead it and all those things that we do with the time. So it's very symbolic. What we do with time is very much what we do with things that we want to use in a better way and allow it to help us. So what do I do? What am, am I saying? Because we have only two options apparently in the world of not so conscious. I either am like so anxious about time that I'm like shaking all the time or I'm so irresponsible. I never show up on time. I'm always late. I said, whoops, I forgot. Did I say that? And, and what I'm saying is befriending time is, is when we bring a reconciliation from the structure of time and from the really being a command of it myself. So instead of deadlines, we create time frames, which is very helpful. I tell you, like within this time frame, I want to get this done, which brings focus, which brings clarity, which gives, I, I only deliver things because my team are always giving me things to do. If mm -hmm. I, you know, I can just live another hundred years and, you know, Megan and team will be sending me yeah. things to do. But then I create time frames around and I say, you know what, until lunchtime, I will do nothing and I will deliver this. And I almost every time I deliver. So what I'm talking about is really understanding that one, I am in charge Two, everything can be a tool for me, including those structures that I feel and experience them as as weight, as as negative, as something that I need to compete with. And only from that position, I can then command my team and lead my team, which really means to have a sense of where you want your team, your organization, your project to go, and then hire people who are capable to do that, or make sure they are capable to identify what tools they're missing. Because when I say capable, doesn't mean all-knowing. Capable that I know enough, but I also am a consciousness in progress. I, when I know more, I need more. Your job is the observer and the tower, top tower, as it is the same for. So there's two things you're doing as you're standing or sitting in that tower. One is inner self, self-leadership. Two is outer self, which is your world, whatever it is. And, and it's by our proximity. It's my immediate world. It's my team. It's my project. It's my family. And then bigger world and, and consciousness is cosmos that I live in. A lot of the work that you do is rooted in this idea of mindfulness. And when you talk about that tower, which for you, you call it a tower. For me, I've always thought of it as like a plane. The bird's eye view. That concept is very related to meditation and mindfulness. Can you talk a little about what that means, that tower, that 30,000 foot view or a plane for some of us? <laughs> I like you. I like your version much better. Yeah, mine's you know like in a plane, maybe in first class. It's in the motion. Yeah. <laughs> it's moving. I like that. Yeah. I suppose it's because I'm older. I'm stationed there. <laughs> you are moving. I like that. Yes, let me just define mindfulness because yep. this, this word has been used and overused. So mindfulness, and it's my definition, it's not a definition that you can find anywhere else. I added a few things to it. Mindfulness to me is being aware and accepting of the present moment experience that you're having with compassion and with curiosity. So I used five key words, acceptance, awareness, 
presence, compassion, curiosity. And compassion is the missing part in most definitions of, of mindfulness. Because I always say, you know, with the definition I gave, a very good criminal can have those four initial ones without the compassion. She'll just be a wonderful criminal, but nothing else. So that's mindfulness. And that's really overwhelming. When I, when I define that, it's like, woo, to be all of that is like, woo, let's just pick one. And that's my suggestion. And believe it or not, I practice that. Every day I go with one of those. And I say, today, can I just stay curious? And any one of those five will take you there. In, in that context of, of mindfulness. And then people use meditation and mindfulness interchangeably. Meditation is only one tool for mindfulness. Meditation is just sitting for whatever minutes a day to practice all those five elements and see if you can do it. It's just like, you know, you play. It's not, it's like if it was NBA play, it was their practice. But really, the real thing is, what do they do on the court, you know, when they show up and playing? So I may be a great meditator, but just don't catch me on the roads when I'm driving or God forbid, if I disagree with you. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying my measure is not there. I always tell my students, there is no meditation hell. You will not go there if you don't practice. But it's a great place to start <laughs> if you want to learn how to become aware. But my whole work, whole work over 30 years has been since the first teacher that I picked to work with, how can I take that from the cushion to off the cushion? And it's funny because when I talk to people about my practice and I mentioned that I have a mindfulness teacher, the first thing that people think is that I meditate. Meditation is actually incredibly hard for me. If you know anything about me, sitting still is my version of hell. So I have a very hard time and I try. I challenge myself certainly to learn and to practice and it's come and it's gone. But that is not where I have found a connection or quite frankly, fulfillment. It's actually through the more intellectual side, I would say, of the work, which is how do we take the, men the mental constructs, the ideas of meditation to your point and figure out how do we use it on the court? And one of the most powerful things I think about our work together is walking out of, you know, and any kind of work is only as good as how you practice it. And I think in my journey to be a, a more aware human, I think I made a choice to really do the work. And we talk about that a lot. But what that means is like when I walk out of my time with you and you give me a challenge, I actually go and do that challenge. Like I actually do my homework. And so it's had an incredible impact on me. But one of the things that I think is really so powerful about mindfulness is the practice of it on the court. So can you give some examples for those who are trying to develop their leadership of how they could practice mindfulness, like on the court during the game? Great. Yes. And you are a perfect example of exactly what I was saying, that you do not meditate, but you do live consciously. And that's very important distinction because a lot of people give up on mindfulness on the basis of the fact that I can't meditate. Absolutely. And I'm saying, that's fine. Can you talk consciously? Can you drive kindly? They say, yeah. I say, okay. Then, then you're practicing mindfulness. Well, I think on that point, for me, what that actually means, what the mindfulness practice really means is first, learning how to sit in that tower. It was first learning how to sit at that 30,000 foot view and see myself and my emotions and what I'm going through more objectively. Now it's not always perfect and I'm not always there. Some things come easier than others, but learning how to sit at that 30,000 foot view and say, okay, this is a challenging moment. Then it's understanding who I want to show up as and recognizing the, con the command that I have in any moment to show up consciously. 
right? That to me has been where the mindfulness practice has impacted my leadership, right? It's saying, I can see this, I can see what's going on, and I'm going to make a choice of how to react. Exactly. And that's, I call it mindfulness in action, because to me, the value is only, my only objection I remember to my teacher, who was a very, very senior Buddhist monk, was like, what do you know? (laughs) Do you drive? No. Do you like fight with people? No. Do you have children? Are you married? No. Do you do this? Do you have an organization? Do you pay taxes? Do you? And and he used to smile at me and say, no, but you do. You go and take it there. I'm teaching you what you, what I can. And I think that's exactly what role I took. And I said, okay, that sounds great. But how do I, when I'm doing executive coaching, when I'm talking to a person who is really responsible for a whole team internationally, what do I do? And I think one of the tools that I want to leave your listeners with is the tool of courageousness that you are not afraid to sit in the awareness tower or awareness plane, as you called it, because there is a lot of fear. I I know what I might find if I go there, believe it or not, consciously or subconsciously. So I don't want to even sit there. So my first question is, do you lead consciously? And most people will tell me, oh, it's working. I'm saying, I didn't ask whether it's working or not. I want to know if you are doing this with awareness, which is the first principle of, of mindfulness. Are you doing it with awareness? Two, are you curious about yourself and your journey and the journey of your team and the journey of your project and your organization? Because remember, this is all a play. And you know I'm all for fun. Please bring fun into your leadership because so often I walk in when we used to walk in to organizations. And, you know, the first thing I do when they ask me to evaluate the culture, I just walk and they think I'm crazy. I just say, they say, what, what, what do you mean walk? I said, just let me just walk. Let me just walk because I can feel what's going on. Sometimes it's so tight Did you think, oh my God, like, you know, I want to get out of here as soon as possible. We need to bring a sense of playfulness and fun into our organizations, into our life and into our mind, because mind is not programmed that way. Fun is not in the department of the mind. And with the moment we bring the fun into our leadership, that means we're talking integration because fun, playfulness, belongs to a different department. It goes to the department of the heart, for the lack of a better word. And the moment I go there, that means I'm really starting the process of integration of something that has far beyond just my mind capacity and information for me. So one is the awareness, and two is curiosity, and three is fun and playfulness. This is all a playground for our growth. Do not take it seriously or as seriously as we usually take it or you usually take it because that's when all the doors are closed. Playfulness of a child and awareness of an adult is the best combo for progress. Self-progress, organizational progress, team progress. I think that's actually an unbelievably important point because, you know, we talk about heavy stuff here. It is deep and it is rich. And sometimes we forget that it's not to be taken that seriously in certain ways, right? Like being a leader is actually quite fun. And actually, most of the time I spend with my team, we're laughing and 
cracking jokes and really enjoying our time together. And that, by the way, is a conscious choice that I made. I remember the day sitting in your office where I made the decision that I wanted work to be fun. I had the recognition, the awareness that I am a workaholic. I would not really be able to pull back on how passionately and deep I work. And so if I'm going to have this level of work ethic and this sort of inclusion of work in my life that I better have fun doing it. And after I created that awareness, then it was about action. And again, creating awareness and then taking that action, that's a muscle that's really built over time. It doesn't always have to be so serious. The action for me was how do I create a culture at Fahrenheit that's fun? And we do things. We dance together. That's one of the things that a lot of people who follow us know. We do. I make my team dance like maniacs on calls sometimes just to have a good laugh and create some positive energy, you know? And so I think it isn't that it needs to always be so serious. The tall order is quite serious. The tall order, I think, of wanting to show up as a leader or wanting to consciously show up authentically as yourself and looking at the world objectively and removing yourself a bit from emotions. I think that is a tall order and that is a serious undertaking. But I think what you're saying and what I think is a great reminder is that the output of it can be anything. The output of it can be fun and it can be playful and it can be wonderful as you you know talk about. It doesn't always have to be the serious side of things. Exactly. I mean, it goes back to appro- appropriateness of the role and where do I need to be serious and where do I need, because seriousness is so heavy that when we go there, we can't get out of it. And that's why we need a reminder. I mean, nobody needs to remind us and say, be serious in the workplace because we are serious. But then we don't know how to get out of it. And then that becomes an obstacle and, and you know, exactly what you said that doesn't allow us to enjoy it. I mean, just imagine if you could enjoy these many hours, I mean, especially now where people are working from home, mm-hmm. most of them and, and things that are, I mean, I completely changed my setting when I started working from home because I just decided, you know, I, I need some things that are important. They need to be fun. And put, I created new paintings or brought things home and, and it's because I want to have fun. Yeah. I don't want to say, oh, God, you know, I've got to go have a client. I want to say, you know, got a client. Let's see what we can unfold today. It's not always like that. I always say this and I, my immediate fear is that people say, oh, my God, I'm not like that. So maybe it's not for me. You make it like that. You, ha- you are an active participant. You are a complete active participant in this making play fun, effectiveness, good leadership, being in command, being in charge, being in really a clear spot at any given time. Clarity, what is my clarity? I mean, that's probably the, if you were to identify one single thing I do when I do executive coaching, it's just I clarify, clarity. And you know my famous example of this going to a meeting with a, with a very high-ranking person who you know, they talk about numbers that for me, there's like two extra zero in front of it. And we're going to a meeting and this was in Europe. I was, um, you know, co- coaching him and, and I had flown with him to Europe and we're going to a meeting. It's a huge financial institution and it's a nine o'clock meeting and it's like two minutes to nine. We're going in and he says, okay, let's go. You ready, Mitra? I said, why are we going in? And he turns to me and says, what do you mean? I said, why are we going to this meeting? He said, because we have a meeting. I said, but that can't be the reason. Why are we going to this meeting? Uh, we were going, he was negotiating, a, I don't know, $200 million, a huge number, I can't remember, loan for, for the company. 
He said, because we want to get a loan. And he goes to open the door and I stop him again. And I said, so how much is the loan amount? He said, he told me the amount. He goes in and I stop him again. And he's really frustrated by now. I said, what is the interest rate that you're going to agree to? What's the maximum? And he thought about it. He gave me a number. Uh, and he goes again. I said, just a second. When are we finishing the time? And he's like ready to kill oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Mitra, we're going in because I want this amount of money with this interest rate. And we're going to be out of here by 1030. I said, good. Now we know why we're going in. That's all I did. And he paid me, you know, a lot of money to do that. <laughs> That's all I did. We went in and this was his third meeting. He told me I wasn't present in the first two meetings. Every time he was going on and on about something completely irrelevant and extremely energy consuming, I sent him a note because I can't speak when I'm coaching. I mean, I'm not yeah. a participant. Send him a note. I said the amount, the interest rate, 1030. And he said, oh, and uh, going back to the point of, and we were out of there by 1025 and he got what he wanted. It's not always a story like that, but the clarity does that for you. So let me leave your listeners with that. Allow any entrance, any entrance, physically, emotionally entrance, be with that kind of clarity if it's a work-oriented. Mitra, I feel like we, as usual, barely scratched the surface. But first, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I feel so grateful truly to have you in my life and as my teacher. And I think for me, really, honestly, I, I didn't know or believe that people could change. For me, what I've learned through my work with you is that you actually can, you just want to have to. And change doesn't have to be a negative thing. And it doesn't have to be a serious thing. It can be a positive light or fun thing. But it all really begins with a choice. And it really begins with the choice of how you want to show up, what you want to accomplish and creating that clarity can help you in defining those choices. And one question I want to leave you with before we, we end today that dawned on me while you were talking, and I'm curious your thoughts is, do you believe there is anything you cannot change with perception shift? Death. The only thing you cannot change with perception shift. You can change the experience of death, yep. but you cannot change the actual dying. This body will die. Impermanence is what basically, in a general sense, we cannot change. So that's why we need to be singing and dancing with the impermanence around us. Well, on that cliffhanger, <laughs> on that cliffhanger, we're going to leave you today. Thank you so much, Mitra. I adore you and I appreciate you. And I hope that for everyone listening, you got so much out of today and we'll send all of Mitra's information your way so you can follow her and listen to her and learn from her and go to her classes. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to explore and play. Play. Thank you so much. 